Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, we are back with Simon Howley, Amanda Perriton and Andrew Thornhill QC and today we're going to be discussing a live or a, a live case that's just finished so real life I think we'll change the names only but to give everyone an idea of the steps and the hurdles involved when incorporating and also involving some group structure so previously we discussed some of these on episode 22 and episode 4 in relation to section 24 mitigation and also group structure. So I guess we'll go over to you guys if you want to give us a quick rundown of a quick intro maybe of what exactly the case was and, and uh, what what the goal was really. Okay, this is a, um, a client we actually got from the podcast number four, I think it was. So we signed a client up in March. Uh, he's an existing building client. He's got a company in Birmingham been trading as, as a builder for um, or a developer for four, five, six years. He also had um, LLP created already, uh, which he had bought a building in that to develop as well. So already again trading through a, a partnership. And he had a couple of shell companies cast to one side, which have done no activity at all, they're currently dormant. So after chatting to the clients, uh, the idea was we could easily form a simple property group. Um, no need to go through the rigmarole of a share, share exchange and HMRC clearance. So we just transferred the shell companies underneath his current building company and that formed a nice little group. And that's nice and simple and also quite cheap for the clients. Then the issue then was really to incorporate it, the LLP into his current company. Initially, look at the partnership, he had no agreement in place to inhibit his wife. Um, so we advised him to put an agreement in place to formalise the LLP so therefore, of course, the first thing that HMRC will ever ask for is to see, is it really a partnership? You can never assume between a husband and wife is a partnership, although they will, of course, assume it is. Um, but it needs to be a formalised agreement, nothing too complex, just an agreement in place to uh, detail how they split the profits and capital and so on. And we do tend to find that um, lots of clients, when they're formulating their partnerships and or their companies, they tend to look at um, agreements like partnership agreements or shareholder agreements as an additional thing that they don't really need or that, you know, it, it's, it's jogging along nicely for them. Um, but, you know, as Simon just said, if HMRC are inquiring, they do need to see that there is actually a formalised agreement in place and that there is an intention that there isn't a partnership in the first place. So that is quite a key point um, for any uh, listeners who already have incorporated or have got companies or who have got LLPs, you know, get an agreement in place. Yes, I mean, also, it's not just the documentation. It's having a track record, preferably accepted by the revenue, that there is a partnership. Because it would look a bit odd if you created a partnership on day one and incorporated it on day two. So there's got to be the underlying reality of, of a partnership. In fact, with an LLP, uh, you've got to have some documentation, haven't you? You can't have one without some documentation. Yes, yeah, it's, like it's formalised at that company's house. And of course, this, this, this 
Twilight anyway. He'd been training for about a year. Uh, yeah. So from history, he got a track return already submitted to HMRC, so we got that kind of already submitted as well. With this one, I think was the he bought the property in the in the partnership or the one he was developing, but he only had it under under one title. Yeah. So in terms of of how we were looking at the uh, the structure of the of this arrangement. Um, it was just everybody said, you know, it was important to document the fact that the NLP was there existing. It had been trading. It, it was backed up by formal agreements and, you know, a history that demonstrated there was an NLP there in the first place. And, and as I recollect, Amanda and Simon, the business was uh, certainly included a substantial element of property development. In other words, it, it was clearly and undoubtedly a business because there is an issue sometimes within corporation as to whether simply letting properties is a business or not. There's quite a lot of law on this if you look up Lindley on partnership. But in this case, it was quite obvious that there was a business. So it needs to be, it needs to be clear that it's a trading business rather than an investment business, is that No, right? no, 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 that's, it. that's not right. It's got to be a business. It's got to be a partnership is carrying on business in common with a view to partnership, uh, with a view to profit. And the point is that simply letting a property, doing nothing more um, on the case law may not be a business. The same point arises in inheritance tax with business property relief. You know, if, for example, you're running a bed and breakfast, you're obviously running up and down stairs and cooking the meals, that's trading. If you merely let a room and put a cooker in it and say, you can cook your own breakfast, that might not be enough. I mean, there are quite a few cases on this, and it's certainly a point what one wants to consider. However, in this case, it was perfectly obvious that they were doing property development. So it was a business. Okay, so we got the basics. Um, we knew he qualified as a business. Um, is it a partnership? Uh, therefore, we knew then they would qualify for the exemptions from stat duty, paragraph 18, when we incorporated it. So that was also kind of uh, sorted out. So really then it was a matter of looking at the issues and on the, on the, on the legal side, because of course, he bought a property with... It was split into three apartments or three individual units, but it only got it on one title. So he he bought he bought the bought the freehold and then developed it into three flats. But the actual title itself was just a freehold title. So it, it doesn't <clears throat> excuse me prevent you from if you wanted to do an assured shorthold tenancy on each individual flat you know it wasn't an issue from that perspective obviously subject to lending requirements but the actual value was diminished really by the fact that the property as a freehold was split into three flats and you could substantially in terms of refinancing raise more capital uh, if you individualized those titles because individually they were worth considerably greater than they were sat in uh, uh, as a whole in the freehold so we then looked at how we were going to assist him raising that additional uh, finance and the way that that was done was by splitting the titles from the freehold into three leases and then the loan to value was then um, valued against the value of the three new leasehold titles rather than the uh, freehold title itself. The creation of those uh, three leasehold titles, as I recall, uh, was done after the incorporation. Is that right? In other words, 
freehold goes in and immediately it goes in, you can grant the leases to, uh, in this case, I think there were subsidiary companies which were going to hold the leases and do the short-term letting. I yeah, think that's, that's, that's how we did it. Yeah, that's exactly right, because um, obviously there was, we had to look at the lending that was set outside in the LLP um, to start with, how that lending was going to be uh, redeemed effectively and how new finance was going to be raised on the leases once they'd gone into the subsidiary. So the asset purchase agreement that I drafted up to enable that transaction to happen made specific reference to the way in which the properties would transfer through and the leases would be granted. No, yes. So the, the freehold would go into the company subject to the existing finance, then there would be an immediate refinance and the grant, the splitting of the title. That's and of course, right, yes. the taking over of the existing finance, we dealt with in podcast four. Strictly speaking, if you read the section, which is now section 162 of the Taxation of Capital Gains Tax Act, it doesn't allow for the assumption of liabilities. It's a glaring hole in the legislation, which has been there since 1965. And wonder of wonders, it's filled by a concession. They've never bothered to change the law, which is actually a quite tricky, as I mentioned, I think, in a previous podcast. What exactly is a liability of the business? It's clear enough, obviously, in this particular case, if you borrowed money on your main freehold property with a view to redeveloping it and all that sort of thing, that's clearly a business liability. But there will be cases where it's a little less clear and it's an area you need to watch for because the revenue sets a concession. If we don't agree, your only remedy is not to appeal but to go on a judicial review, which is highly expensive and very uncertain. So that is a point to watch. But in this case, the point didn't arise. But my recollection, Simon, is this, that apart from the existing property, there was a property which the old partnership had contracted to buy, but they hadn't got round to completion. And that presented one or two special issues, as I recall. Is that right? It was, yeah. Um, they were going to buy, as a side issue to the incorporation, um, an exchange contracts, Amanda? Or... Yes, so, so they, bought, they bought it at auction. So the auction pack had been issued. Um, and so the client was satisfied uh, in order to go and, and bid at auction. Um, yes. And of course, once you've, you've bid at auction and if you're successful, then you effectively you're under contract from that point. Um, so yes. unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately, what, what happened was that that contract had been, as you rightly say, had been entered into in the name of the LLP. And we were in the throes of uh, incorporating the LLP. Um, so that just presented just a little bit of um, excitement in order to transfer and assign the benefit of that contract into one of the subsidiaries. And you did eventually, is this right, assign the benefit of a contract. What that one stage, as I recall, you were considering recontracting, uh, taking out contract one and replacing it 
with a new contract with the incorporated vehicle. Yes, uh, yes. The other party wouldn't have been too keen on that, so it didn't (laughs) happen. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously these these things are always subject to um, the solicitors on the other side agreement. So we can't just change the name on the contract um, without the person that's actually selling the property to us and their solicitors agreeing to it. And as you rightly say, in this in this circumstance, they were not uh, keen to re-exchange the contract that had already been entered into. So as a result of that, we had to assign the benefit of that contract to the new subsidiary uh, within the incorporated structure, because obviously if we hadn't have done so, that would have then left a property outside of the... Uh, outside, the yes, but you, you certainly wanted to go in, yes. We wanted to get everyone in, yes. Amanda, is, is, um, was there any issue with assigning that contract then to the other entity? Is there anything that people need to watch out for in terms of when they're looking at the legal pack? Is there anything that could stop them in that contract from signing that? Because I know well, a con- a, uh, that's an interesting point there, Rod. I mean, some contracts are by their terms unassignable. Yeah. I mean, it's unusual for a property purchase contract to be non-assignable. Well, it's conceivable, mm. but it could be. Of course, if it's non-assignable, um, you, uh, the, the assignment would be ineffective. And you'd, I suppose you'd have no option but to complete the contract and then put it back yeah. in with the rest of the business later on. Yeah. I don't think I, that problem arose in this case. It, it didn't. I mean, if you look at the um, standard conditions, the standard commercial conditions under which the contract was entered into. So yes. I, I think in, in, in terms of um, the clients looking out for things, I think it always comes back to the, 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 the point that Simon and I always really try to impress upon the clients is the, the conversation that needs to be had with us just, yes. to, just to let us know what it is you're thinking of doing and how you're thinking of doing it. It doesn't mean that we can't get round things for you, which obviously in this circumstance we were able to. Um, what the client needs to be aware of, though, is that there's always there's going to be a cost charge. So in order to assign this particular contract, the sellers and their solicitors imposed additional fees on us, which you know, yeah. they're yeah. perfectly entitled to do. And there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. Mm. Um, so you, you obviously then have to weigh it up in terms of the commerciality of the deal in the first place. But um, it's perhaps just an, a, an additional cost that um, when costs are mounting, it, it can feel a bit sore to bear. But that, but that really, um, you know, as Andrew says, you know, if the contract specifically came, contains a provision that says you can't yeah. assign it, then we would have had to have left it out and then incorporated after the, the completion of the, of the sale. So you probably would have to have delayed the whole of the incorporation because when you incorporate a business, you only get the capital gains tax relief if you incorporate all the business and all the assets of the business. So you can't sort of say, right, we'll do the first lot now and then we'll throw in a few more later on. In, in fact, that's a very, very important point, isn't it, Simon and Amanda, to identify precisely what the business does consist of mm. because all the assets, apart from cash, have to be transferred if you want to get this incredibly valuable relief under section 162. It's true, you, you need your starting point, you need to do your research initially. Um, and we knew anyway the issue before with the titles not being split. So obviously 
creating the group was beneficial because then, of course, we had group relief from stamp duty when the leases were then split and granted out to the various subcos that covered off all of any tax issues there. So it, because it's planning it from stage one, two, three, and looking forward, really. Because the freehold and leasehold can't be owned by the same entity either. So, you can't, yeah, you can't grant a lease to yourself. So they you can, have you can, you well, you can use a nominee. You can. Uh, it's a bit complicated, but I mean, <laughs> technically, no, no. So we looked ahead and planned this. So we knew when we'd incorporate a company, we'd, or we'd got two subcos to play around with. We knew we could yeah. have the leases then down to uh, to one subco, and I think my memory is is, is correct. We then had another. Subco was going to be in a way nice property and rent it all out, so it was nice and, and simple from the start, really. And of course, once the leases go into the, the subco that effectively became a management company, yeah. um, you've then got a very neat title. Um, each flat has its own registered title, so in terms of the future ability to raise finance on that, it alleviates a lot of the concerns. Mm. that either lenders have or clients have in trying to get the lending. So in order to get sort of a preferential interest rate and not feel overly penalised, you know, once once you can sit with that entity at the end, it's a very, it's a very attractive and commercial place to be. Yes, and you can, you can sell one entity and keep the others and not disturbing the finance on the others, which is obviously mm. a huge advantage. Mm. Sorry, Rod, I was interrupting you. You were about to say some words of wisdom. I was just going to say it's it's quite important about the number of units because the higher up you go in number of units actually almost reverses where a lot of lenders prefer it to all be on one title rather than having it um, separate. So I think there's a there's around between six and ten units in a block. If they're all going to be rented out, some lenders actually prefer it to go down the other way. Well, because they've, they've got access, their security, if you like, is across the board. Exactly, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also it depends on the size of the units. If they're very small, then they're thinking, well, actually, there's no point because there's not a huge market um, to sell these. So this is better as being sold as an investment as a whole. Uh, and then they might value it down by a percentage or, or something along those lines. But again, it's really important to speak to whoever's providing the finance to find out what it is that they prefer um, and will give you the, the higher valuation, which inevitably mm. most... most yes, I suppose if you've got one overall uh, charge on everything, you just want to have it clear that if you sell one, you can repay that bit, but then re-borrow it later. You want a facility which is flexible. Yeah, this is a, another point which is quite interesting. So let's say you've got a 60% um, loan to value and you've got a, a, I don't know, five different units there and you decide to sell one. One of the conversations you need to have with your lender is, well, what ha does all the, all the proceeds from that sale go back to the lender or would it be... Yes. 60% of the proceeds that go back to that lender. Uh, yes, that, that's, a very, that's a very good point, yes. Because a lot of people don't, don't, un, don't look into that until it's almost too late and they think, well, I'll sell this to raise some capital for a new venture and, and then they find actually... They find they it's, all, it's all gone down a black hole. Yes. Exactly, yeah. Not yeah. Come back. And I suppose from the lender's point of view, that always comes down to their loan to value. So, you know, they'll release the charge on one of the units on the proviso that the the because you know 
by by definition, if you're m removing one of the um, units from the title, you're going to devalue the whole. Sure. Um, exactly. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's their exactly. concern, it's I guess. quite complicated. So, again, important to kind of look at what you're trying to do from the outset and, and speak to all the the professionals about that and hopefully your um, your goals won't change halfway through or you might find that things become <laughs> yes. a bit tricky. Yeah, that, 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 that's a very important point. Which again, I think we discussed in another podcast about um, investing versus developing and, and what do you do where along the way your, your, your aspirations to what you want to do with the units change and, and that's where obviously the group structure can come in very handy. Yes. Yeah, so th this was a relatively straightforward incorporation, albeit we had a few things to tweak along the way, but that, that, that just happens in commercial events anyway. And I think the main thing really was, was dealing with the bridging finance was, was the most painful bits, from the client's point of view anyway, just to get that kind of over the line and dealing with their lawyers. But yeah, that was the transaction from start to finish. What was the major commercial driver for the incorporation in this case, Simon? Was it the, the tax-free uplift? Was it the interest uh, relief? Uh, or, or was it a variety of things? Do you remember? It, it, it was more holistic, really. Um, I mean, the client's only late 20s. Yes. He's got big ambitions. The group structure really kind of made sense from a planning point of view from a tax point of view from a company point of view but also I was looking forward really for um, he has no kids at the moment his, his wife is in, is in Ireland so it's really kind of looking forward to he has one set of assets to then uh, do for estate planning i.e. the holding company shares was that um, and also it, it made more sense because he's going to be doing more development as well and also retaining some properties on one side to rent out so his, his idea was from our initial conversation was to build up a, a, um, a medium-sized property group, it may include properties in Ireland and the UK. So uh, looking forward to when he's into his, his 40s and 50s, it makes sense that if you've got one holding company on top of all that, to then look after the shares. Uh, yeah. yeah. I imagine it's, it's much easier to do now when there are less assets involved that are going to be moving around entities than in the future when, by the sounds of it, um, he, he'll hopefully have, have a few more. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a crystal ball, and I think you're looking forward maybe three or four or five years ahead, but um, things do change along the way. But that yeah. was not behind it, really. And I think as well, sort of, uh, as, you, as you go along with, um, with lenders, if, you, if you've got a portfolio of properties um, that maybe are in a partnership or in your you know, individual names, and you've got lending on each of those properties, mm -hmm. and you might have five, six, seven different lenders... Um, one of the difficulties is is a incorporating that structure subject to the lending that's in place there um, that presents quite a challenge yeah. um, and so once you have then created this very neat structure you know all future purchases can go through one company and the lending can be applied to that one company and if if there's a requirement to split off leases, then you've got a separate, you've got a ready-made sort of management company mm. um, that, that can also manage that property for you. So I think it, it creates, obviously, you know, future planning, tax advantages, but also, you know, raising finance in the future. Um, that is quite helpful. And one, one thing that I know a lot of people, it puts a lot of people off forming that group structure where maybe they've already got a company that's um, that's got assets and they've got lending on those assets. They're concerned that 
they would have to then refinance those assets if they were to put a holding company on top of that company. But this then comes down to how the wording of, uh, of the lending contract is, is made, as we well know uh, from my experience. And it's, it's vital to kind of look at what the wording is on the contract um, in terms of changing, um, because obviously if you're putting a holding company on top of a limited company that already owns the assets, then the lending is going to be against those assets and the ownership of those assets is not changing because that limited company will still own the assets. Yeah. When you put a holding company on, it's only the shares of the limited company that change. And quite often uh, with, with lenders, they won't, well, a lot of residential certainly won't have kind of thought about that or certainly won't have documented it in. So there is often no need to inform them of a change of the ownership of the sh- uh, of the shares of that company. It's just of the ownership of that asset. Yeah, and I, th- I think as well, you know, uh, and that, you know, comes back to the point of just talking to us and, you know, we're looking at your mortgage conditions. And as you rightly say, you know, some lenders, that, that it isn't, as long as you're not breaching the mortgage conditions, because often, you know, a, um, a natural pro- thought process of uh, of clients is that you know if i default on my mortgage it will enable my lender to repossess my property actually if i breach any of the mortgage conditions that will enable my lender to repossess my property so it's it's you know it's not just about you know extending an existing property um and not telling your lender that that's what you're doing it's actually if you breach any of those mortgage conditions that will give rise to an opportunity for the lender to um, call in their their charge and uh, you know as, as we frown rod you know it's just a question of being aware of those mortgage conditions reading them properly and then in the event that you need to drop a lender a line or an underwriter a line you can just um, yeah. give both the client and the lender reassurance that it will be okay. <laughs> Yes. You certainly did that for me, um, <laughs> and I was amazed at how quickly it all happened. Actually, so yeah, <laughs> well, well done. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it's just that it's. It, I, th- I think you know, o- overwhelmingly, one of the key threads for us is is the number of different things that yep. interlink in order to make the transaction successful. So you know, whether it's a tax question, whether it's your lender whether it's your title, you know, those things have all got to mash together and be done properly. And I think that's, that's our best advice. In this case, from the client's point of view, what do you, what do you think was the biggest hurdle that, that he came across during or, or she came across du- during this whole process that, that they found most difficult? I think it's quite, from my point of view, the, the tax was fairly straightforward. The, for the client... It was illegals uh, and the dealing with the lenders. Uh, um, just a commercial practicality of it was was for him and for us quite painful. Yeah, I I, I would I definitely agree with that. I mean, I'd, I'd I'd say that the the legals are reasonably straightforward if you have a good line of communication. And and I think in the absence of that, and in the absence of everybody sort of not pulling together and quite understanding where we're going. That, that causes communication breakdowns and pain for a client, really. Mm-hmm. Because we also have in between the tax bit and the legal bits and the lender, we've got a broker in the middle as well. <laughs> so the, the more layers you have, the, the, more, the more complex it becomes. And then, of course, don't forget the clients. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yes, I mean the next incorporation is going to be 19 properties with multiple lenders. Um, so I think that one's going to be, and also is a is a unmarried uh, man as well. So that's going to be, I think, a, a lot more complex. Oh well, I'll be interested to see how that one goes. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully the lenders aren't. Uh, Lenders' legal teams aren't quite as difficult for that one. Hopefully. And obviously now it's all completed. Client's got, he's he's finished the um, the title split and uh, has got lending on on the new units and all going well. So he can move on to the next to the next purchase, or next development. Yeah, and I yes. think yeah, and I think as well so the, because we've got the where how the structure's now in place. I think the client understands obviously what what we've got to do and how it's to be done you know we've got a good team in place so mm. i just think it sets it up well for the future for future well, yeah, it, it gives you that good platform for future growth doesn't it to be much more efficient than obviously not everything's going to be like like it was when you when you have to go through that yeah so, brilliant so if anyone wants to get in touch with you regarding maybe incorporation or group structure what's the best way to contact you you know to uh, inquiries at bhptax.law. Of course, we are now rebranded now from yesterday. We are now Bell Howley Perotten. Fantastic. Bell Howley Perotten. So I will make sure I put a link uh, to that in the show notes so anyone interested uh, in the services of Bell Howley Perotten can contact them. Uh, and thank you, every, everyone, for coming on and running us through that brilliant case study. Thanks, Rod. Pleasure. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast.